This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. This week on Upfront, we discuss a new memoir that profiles the life of the late Dr. Dora Akunyili, a Nigerian public servant and former head of Nigeria's National Agency for Food and Drug Administration and Control. She was also a passionate supporter of Ubuntu, the philosophy that stresses community over the individual. It's a philosophy that I feel is a key to the future that we're looking to usher in. It's all about community. It's about understanding that not only everybody matters, but it's really important that we take care of each other. That is author Chidiogo Akunyiri, the daughter of the late Dr. Dora Akunyiri. She joins us to talk about her new memoir, I Am Because We Are, an African Mother's Fight for the Soul of a Nation. But as always, let's start the show by listening to your voices. And this time we asked you how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected you economically. My name is Mutavali Apple, and I'm a teacher by profession. So COVID financially has affected we teachers because right now we are not paid since February. And the rent, we are supposed to pay the rent, which is rising now. It's now like four months when you're not paying that. So what does it mean to me? That when we resume to start working, I'm meant to get all that money and I pay the landlord. Life has not been easy. We have been surviving on something very little. As you can see now, the time I move to go and look for money, it's just random. Because even if I wake up very early in the morning, yeah, it's always just like luck. I was a chef somewhere, but now I cannot work. But right now, even though you cook food, you can eat it yourself. My name is Dude. I'm a South Sudanese. The COVID-19 has affected me as a personally because I did not even go to school. The life is too hard, no money. The parents are not even working. My own understanding is that it affected the whole country, the whole nation, and the whole world. Many thanks to you, all our listeners. You know, we always enjoy listening to your opinions, more of your voices later on on the show. Now, health experts say that counterfeit medical products continue to present a public health safety risk, especially in low- and middle-income countries. In Nigeria, studies show that the consumption of counterfeit medicine is fueled by a lack of access to medical care and, in many cases, corruption in government institutions. But one Nigerian public servant will always be remembered for having led the crusade against counterfeit medicine, taking on fraudulent drug manufacturers and suppliers. Dr. Dora Akunyili, who passed away this month in 2014, served as the Director General of Nigeria's National Agency for Food and Drug Administration and Control. Inspired by her sister's death from fake insulin, Dr. Kunili spearheaded a crusade to raise awareness about the public health dangers posed by fake drugs. A new memoir written by her daughter and author Chidiogo Akunili says that Dr. Akunili was a Pan-Africanist driven by a sense of Ubuntu. That is an African philosophy that puts the importance of community over the individual. Chidiogo talks to us about her new book, I Am Because We Are, An African Mother's Fight, for the soul of a nation. And joining me to co-host this conversation is Hannah Bezad in Rabat, Morocco. I am happy that you're able to join us today uh, from Hawaii. My first question to you is, 
to explain to us the title of your book, I Am Because We Are, The Philosophy of Ubuntu. Why did you choose this as the title for the memoir about your mother? You know, I was always looking for the right title for this book and, you know, just trusted that it would show up. But all throughout the book, I was talking about Ubuntu because it's a it's a philosophy that I feel is a key to the future that we're looking to usher in. It's all about community. It's about understanding that not only everybody matters, but it's really important that we take care of each other because there's an interdependency. So taking care of another is taking care of self. And it's not even just humans taking care of the environment, taking care of of everything around us. So I feel that this is something that rings so true to us um, and it happens to be as Africans in this case and is an African humanist philosophy and something that we have a familiarity with but there's been a lot of erosion of that and my mother's life in many ways was inviting us to reclaim the truth of this that it is important that we not just take care of self in a selfish way that ultimately encapsulates corruption and all these uh, um, parts of our history that can feel like the whole story, but really um, step up and be there, brothers, sisters, keeper. And this is what she did at the helm of NAFDAQ, as you mentioned earlier, safeguarding the health of millions of Nigerians, fighting as if they were the lives of her own brother and sister. And in many ways, it was because she had felt the pain herself of the loss of her sister's life due to fake insulin. So she knew that every loss was someone's and it was not okay. So that Ubuntu philosophy, I am because we are, captures the essence of interconnectedness and the importance of showing up for that, as did my mother's life. Shijogo, first of all, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I've known you for a few years now and, and reading your book uh, and hearing your voice uh, kind of sharing the behind the scenes is all the more moving to me. Um, I have read the book with delight and uh, I, I also felt how many barriers you had to overcome. Can you tell us what it took you to, to embrace your identity as a writer um, and, and the barriers you had to overcome in writing and publishing this book in particular? There were most certainly a lot of barriers. This was my first uh, book. And to write the first and not my story and others and not just another, my mother's and not just my mother, but mother to so many. Hence the subtitle of an African mother's fight for the soul of the nation. It took a lot because I knew that this book would matter to many. And most certainly, even though my mother is late, it was important to to honor her even in, in not just in telling her story, but really making sure that there are parts of her story that might be a little tougher to tell, but still important to tell and make sure that honest. So there's that part of the struggle and as a part of embracing, stepping into my ability to do exactly this, to tell this very important story with the knowing and the belief that our stories, telling stories in general are important and African stories just giving um, how there's been centuries of 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 Africans not telling the stories of who we are, of people from who we come from, and this is really the 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 generation that is fully embracing that, right? Standing on the shoulders of giants like Ngugo, Tiongo, Chinochebe, etc. 
knowing the importance of story. So um, 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 with all of this, the story mm-hmm. matters. Am I able to do it? Am I able to do it right? Am I able to bring, do it justice? And every step of the way is riddled with fears and uh, question marks and doubts. You know, cherry doubts. And yeah. literally every chapter I share with a friend, it's like, is it awful? Is it good? So, and I really am sharing this because for anyone out there who is called to tell a story, trust that calling, trust that intuition and step into it. Mm-hmm. And there is a reason for that. And that was what finally gave me that confidence that it is important that it is going to touch one person. And for that, I'm here for this. Right. And now I'm happy to know that it's not just touched once, but thousands already, and it will keep going. And that's the power of stories. Right. And, and how were you able to successfully channel the voice of, of your mother in this book? You know, part of it feels like she was indeed telling her own story in the first person. Why was it important that we hear Professor Kunili's voice in the first person? And did she know that you would actually be writing this book at some point? Had you spoken to her before she passed? No, not at all. My mother passed in 2014 and it had not even crossed my mind, let alone uh, was able to share with her. In, in life, she had written a book on her work as the director general of NAFDAQ, but it was a very very academic book, so to say. Um, there is no story of her life. Um, and I felt that was really something that, you know, when you touch millions, there's something about your life that needs to be shared. So with that being said, how did I connect with you writing in her voice? I, I share in the book how the inspiration to write the, this book, her book, came to me after she passed, almost like a whisper of an inspiration that I caught right away. And the whisper was right in my voice, right? And I I kind of dismissed that because I thought, first of all, I could never do that. My mother's different sound, different personality. So I wrote the entire book in third person, telling you my mother's story. At some point, it was like my mother and some point my Dora and this. And then it was always this distance between the, the reader and my mother. And I felt that's not the essence of her. Her whole power is that you could feel her. She walks in and you're like, who is that woman? You know, there's something about her. And I wanted that to come across in the book. So writing in first person was a journey. And eventually when that happened, Happened and I stepped into my mother telling you her story. It felt right because then you could start feeling into this woman that I wanted to introduce to the world or reintroduce to so many who might have thought they knew her, but there was so much more to her than what anyone else might, what even I thought I knew. And it's right in it itself has been a discovery. In case you're just joining us, this is Upfront on the Voice of America. Let's take a quick break and listen to your opinions. So we asked Nigerians living in Lagos, probably the busiest city in Africa, about some of the risks related to fake medicine in their community. I'm usually worried about buying counterfeit medicine when I'm sick because if you take anything that is not supposed to be for what your ailment, that would... Also, okay, can I wait? Can I wait? If you take anything that is not supposed to be part of your system in the process of taking care of an ailment, it worsens the situation. Instead of being cured, you encounter more problems. When the ailment is still there, then you you see yourself having multiple problems. It could lead to life-threatening complications because the care you're taking is not good in the first place and not for the ailments you're trying to cure. I trust the authorities to an extent. 
although they might not be everywhere. I'm very worried because actually I'm opportune to be a bit of a victim sometimes ago and I bought it. Thank God I actually removed the coated part and I discovered that there was nothing in it. So I'm actually worried because so many lives have been lost through this process. Okay, I'll say I trust authorities to a reasonable extent because yes, they are doing their part and we as people too, we need to do our parts. It's kind of scary for me just to walk into the pharmacy and find out that what I get or what I'm going to be getting is going to be dangerous for the health I'm trying to um, save. So uh, what I feel is, um, yes, I'm going to be worried. Yes, I'm going to be scared. And um, I would love the government to do something about it. This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vongani. We are chatting with Nigerian writer Chidiogo Akunyili about her new memoir, Exploring the life of her mother, the late Dr. Dora Akunyili, a Nigerian public servant and Pan-Africanist whose work was driven by a sense of Ubuntu. That is an African philosophy that puts the importance of community over the individual. The memoir is titled, I Am Because We Are, an African mother's fight for the soul of a nation. And joining me from Rabat in Morocco is my co-host, Hannah Bezad. And you, your mother loved her country, Nigeria, deeply, with, even with all its shortcomings. You know, what, what was the driving force behind this passion that often puts her, it, it put her in the crosshairs of people or even situations that would bring harm to her? It's a really great question because I was asking myself that a lot right in the book. You know, who, what shaped this woman? How did she become this, this powerhouse and ultimately her love? Where does that come from? And within the book, I want to really just mention, I do bring the nuance of, you know, she's, she's a powerful woman, but she's still a person. And with her, all the, all the struggles and flaws of a human um, so what shaped, first of all, her love for Nigeria and her origin story? How did that feed in? There's a speech online of her saying, I owe everything I am to Nigeria. And she's sharing this because her, her story is that she grew up in a Nigeria that was providing scholarships for her when she was incapable of covering her studies. So all of her schooling was paid for by the Nigerian government back in the day. And that gave her the platform to do everything that she got to do decades later. So that's something she never forgot. So she has she's that person that never forgets where she came from and, you know, that gratitude for the country that gave her that opportunity because her father had gone from a multi-self-made, multi-millionaire, lost it all at the during the Biafran War. And she knew wealth and poverty, extreme poverty post-war, but could continue with her studies because the Nigerian government was able to support her. And that studies took her into a PhD in the UK. So that's part of that story. Another part is Nigeria is made up of people. And my mother had a deep connection with people. When she was in power, it was just how she could relate with everybody. How Ibo, Yoruba, Fulani, Ethic, it didn't matter. My mother was that woman that, you know, would, you know, feel like a sister to anybody from a different ethnic group. And that's also part of her story. She learns different people in different situations because her world thrust her into being different people in different 
different situations and she embraced that in the people. So I would say her love for Nigeria comes from all of that. And she, she really wanted to share that love. And that's where she stepped into the something called the rebranding campaign when she was in the Ministry of Information Technology that even though was not the success people had known her for, in many ways is the one slogan Nigerians still today remember good people, great nation, trying to say, despite all of our challenges, Nigeria, we have something. And how can we reclaim that? Chidiogo, in your book, you haven't left any stone unturned from memories of of yours and your mother, uh, from aspects of family challenges, illness, threats to life, and so on. And I'm seeing this from the perspective of someone who grew up in North Africa with the conservatism and the taboos that are here. And I'm finding immense inspiration from the courage you had to to embrace to to write this down. But I'm curious to know how the book has been received when it comes to delivering that transparency and and that poise that you take in in sharing uh, these stories. Full disclaimer, when I started writing this book, I in Nigeria would say, fear catch me. I was afraid. There was a little bit of like trepidation. And I was talking to a writer friend uh, who gave me beautiful advice that I'll share now, which was write everything you can always edit. And that was the initial courage I needed because I am from that culture. I am Nigerian and we don't share everything and there are things you save and all of that. And I just like, I... But it's not my truth. It's not my, because uh, I remember I like reading a Brené Brown on shame and really understanding that some of these things we don't share is because we own the shame for hours and it doesn't serve anything. And you transfer it to your, the next generation, the next generation things that there's no shame in it. We all go through and experience different forms of this sort of disappointments in life, etc. So I had to go deep to really trust that it was important to share this and sharing the was there was a, a a healing in it that it was not just about airing dirty laundry and that's wrong and you shouldn't do that but there's it's reclaiming and finding healing for situations that haven't had any space to be seen or felt or even spoken about that's one second was i'm going to write everything and feeling truly and just see where it might be not feel right take us ultimately i want to take away from her story sometimes a lot of people's contributions etc we make it a single story at some point and everybody wants to focus on x and then you know things like that i know i'm sort of being vague but ultimately read the book and you see what i'm talking about or maybe there'll be a space to go deeper and that was a beautiful advice that with my mom you know does this feel right is it okay that I'm sharing this and checking with my father because part of his story comes in fully um, and make sure this was something that was okay and I was actually quite shocked that he was okay with some parts that I thought he would push back and that was that process just put it all out be honest and the truth that this is about healing and light and love and not about anything else because it's all about honoring the story that I think in honoring and fullness many more can step into their own courage in shining light to these places that must be seen and only then can we move forward and heal these parts of our stories that are not as light as the ones that we uh, people get to see. Chidiogo, we have only less than 10 minutes, but I wanted to ask you just to piggyback on that last point you made, um, the story of your mother. How does her journey 
reflect the struggles of women in Africa, whether professionally or personally. I mean, she was a mother, a wife, a professional with many important portfolios. But I'm sure getting there was not easy. And even when she attained these uh, achievements or accomplishments, she continued fighting. You know, most people uh, see such accomplishments as an opportunity to just enjoy the benefits that come with them. But uh, uh, was often she, she was often at the center of these very public battles with forces that many would crumble under the weight of. Absolutely, when when she was being considered uh, to head the National Agency for Food and Drugs Administration and Control (NAFDAC), the voice in the room spoke up saying, "But she's a woman; she can't possibly take on such a strenuous role." And what's interesting is now Nigerians could not even imagine a director general NAFDAC that is not a woman. Um, so she showed, you know, she at some point was named in Nigeria Man of the Year. Like, <laughs> yeah, that, that was almost the way that people could get their head around that she could do as much as she did, which is sort of an interesting misnomer. Um, she did so much and she proved something that I'm struggling to capture and the truth of the capacity of a woman and the capacity of this woman. And there's something she, I'll mention lastly, is that she empowered a lot of women moving through all the loopholes and challenges that came up more than once trying to prevent her. She knew how important it was to support women. So she consciously was hiring women. And she also would say something that back then was a little controversial, which was that women are less corruptible. So she liked to put women in positions of power and access to the easily corrupted Corruptible and she positions. wasn't wrong. And she and wasn't she wrong. Was challenged in the BBC. <laughs> she wasn't wrong. This is now research is coming out in the last two months saying science or data is showing that women are less corruptible. I'm like, no, really? <laughs> so um, yeah. she's, she saw that a decade, two decades ago and was putting women in key positions, knowing that that was supporting the work that needed to be done. And also in general, just really supporting them to show up in full power. Mm. Now, how did your mother's public life affect you at home? How was life in the Chidyogo household? Oh, wow. Big question. Little time. Uh, life was complex. Uh, luckily, we were a little older when she took on the role of um, the DG and then off to, you know, the decades of being in the public eye. But before that, she was just her mom. She was just this goofy woman that we played with. and But also, she was very busy. So that was something that marked our lives um, and something that's an interesting, uh, has been resonating or sort of an interesting conversation for mothers because there's so much pressure to be present all the time. And she had six kids and she wasn't present all the time, but we turned out okay. Um, so it's an interesting, there's an interesting layer there, but life was, um, noisy and there was pressure to be the best we could be because that was also the pressure she had put on herself and that's something that we inherited and there's many layers to life but ultimately um her energy and the kind of woman she was with the love and the drive and her personality most certainly shaped us in many ways that I like to think um, is apparent in all of us till today. That was author Chidiogo Akunyili, the daughter of the late Dr. Dora Akunyili, a Nigerian public servant 
who was a well-known crusader against counterfeit medicines in her country. Chidiogo was speaking to us from Hawaii. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, I'm worried about buying counterfeit medicine. It's, 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 it's really, really very scary because especially when you have children, you, you don't know what to expect. Did you know there was this particular time uh, my son had malaria, ordinary malaria, fa. We treated, he went to the hospital, the drugs, he was giving drugs for where nothing was working. So I now suggested that they should do tests. The, the test is still mal. They changed the drug. They eventually, we had to buy augmentin. After taking the augmentin, eventually he got better. You just imagine the stress and everything we went through just to treat ordinary malaria. I know some people will say malaria is not ordinary, but it's something we are, we are stuck with in this part of the world. So counterfeit drug is, is actually a very horrible thing. No, I, I can't say that I have any trust in government. If you get to maybe Obalende or a code there that you want to buy drug, after buying it and taking it to your doctor, you discover that the doctor will tell that this is a fake drug. So how did the fake drug get into our market if government are doing their job? This is Upfront on the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani, and let's go to Southern Africa in Malawi. A group of young artists in the southern city of Zomba are pulling together different skills and resources to curb unemployment and a lack of capital to start personal businesses. This initiative, which opened last September, now serves as a beacon of hope to many up-and-coming artists in this southern African country. Lamek Masina reports from Zomba. Malawi has recently seen street protests pushing President Lazarus Chagwera to address unemployment in the country. The protesters reminded President Chagwera about his campaign promise that his administration would create one million jobs once voted into power. To address these concerns, the group is running a creative group known as the Tribe Hub that serves as an incubator for creative and entrepreneurial ventures for up-and-coming artists in Malawi. The Tribe Hub opened last September and has now banned a multi-purpose recording studio, a performance stage, and a carpentry workshop. Tawanda Mpando is the manager for the group. Aside from the fact that we wanted to employ ourselves, uh, and create jobs, but it also just stems from the point that uh, as an artist, if you don't realize that you should employ yourself, you should work on your craft yourself and find a way to add value to it, then you're not going to gain anything from it. Some artists of the 21-member group are graduate from the University of Malawi with skills in graphic designs, drawing, illustrations, photography, videography, music production, web development, tailoring and woodwork. So far, the hub has hosted over four events where various artists exhibited their artworks, such as paintings and drawings. It has also helped music artists like Benny Rwanja Jr. improve their skills. I recorded my first song in 2015, but I didn't have time to explore. This time, I can sit down with my fellow creatives, work on a track. How about this? They tell me the directions. We help each other a lot. Before the hub, I couldn't get that. The hub is now working to organize a festival where young and upcoming artists can showcase their talents. 
Alfred Kambankatanja is the art director at the tribal hub. Uh, most of the times, uh, right here in Malawi, there's a problem of up-and-coming artists. We, we are not really given um, a platform whereby we can really showcase our arts. Uh, most of the times, people expect you to be known already for you to be called somewhere to perform. Vitumbikoliwomba is a media marketing concepts and a creative director. She says despite a success story, there are challenges. The major challenge we have is being underestimated. Um, as a young person in Malawi, you are always underestimated to the things that you can actually achieve. Yeah, so when we approach people and they see us as young people, they really rarely ever take us seriously, even though what we're trying to achieve is something important. However, Womba says this hasn't affected their initiative in any way. They say now plans are underway to establish similar hubs in various parts of the country for the benefit of more up-and-coming artists in the country. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Zomba, Malawi. And that's it for this edition of Upfront on the Voice of America. Many thanks to our guests and to you, our listeners, for tuning in. A special thanks to you who contributed your voices. You know, we always enjoy listening to what you have to say about a range of topics on issues that affect your lives. Now visit our website at voaafrica.com to listen to previous episodes of Upfront and catch up with our other shows on African news and features. And remember to connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook. Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Red Carpet, and many others. Just search for VOA Africa. And as our African elders say, a bird that flies off the earth and lands on an anthill is still on the ground. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>